Parents, before we look at our scriptures for today and before we get to the Bible, I'm just going to invite you to take a really big deep breath. Ready in? And out. That felt really good. Let's do one more. Ready? In. Out. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are grateful for the way that you show up in our lives and for the way that you surround us with so many others, with so many varying gifts. We pray, God, that as we look at your scripture today, as we consider what it means for us, that we will remain open-hearted, that we won't let the things that cloud us over, our worries, our anger, our sadness, our fears, that we will not let them block out that whisper of your voice, but that we might find your voice speaking to us gently, firmly, hopefully, through one another, through our mothers, through each person that you put in front of us or next to us each day. Though we are imperfect, God, we pray that your truth might still be known to us in the most perfect way. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, today we are continuing our sermon series on what it looks like for every member to be engaged in ministry, every member of the church, every visitor, every regular attender, what it means for all of them and what it means for all of us to see ourselves as people engaged in ministry. We started this series a couple of weeks ago, and when we started it, we started by looking a little bit more intently at that particular word, the word ministry. We were looking at it as a term because it's so one of those words that is so deeply rooted in Christianese that it can be difficult for us to put a definition to. And so I think it's important for us to consider it a little bit more, particularly because I think that the majority of us in the church have come to understand that word ministry as a term that is reserved for some, but not for all. Namely, I think that most people see that, understand that idea of ministry as something that I do or as something that Jeff does or Becca or Bong or Jan, but not necessarily something that every Christian does every day. After all, the official title of a pastor in our tradition is a minister of the word and sacrament. So it's in my name, it's in our names. But scripture says that that word minister is in your name too. First Peter 2 says that everyone who follows Jesus is a member of Christ's priesthood. And then 1 Corinthians 6 says that our bodies, our actual physical bodies, as well as our collective body of faith, is the very house where God is actively residing, even in this very moment. And then Acts 2 describes the fire of God's spirit falling not just on one or two people, but falling on everyone who was present to worship God. So pastors might be the people who have minister written on our business cards. But according to the scripture, each and every one of us here carries the identity of a minister. Every one of us possesses the identity of a priest in the eyes of God. So, the Merriam-Webster definition of to minister is pretty simple. To minister means to attend to the needs of somebody 
or to provide something that is necessary or helpful to other people. Which means that ministry is not limited to leading worship or to preaching sermons or to praying prayers. And it's not defined by going out and knocking on the doors of strangers and trying to coax people that you don't know to come to church. (gasps) I don't ever think that sounds like a good idea, but that's me. Ministry is much, much broader than Christian-sanctioned ideas. It turns out that we are engaged in ministry every single time that we go out of our way to attend to someone's needs. Each and every time that we seek to provide help or something of value to some other person, and we are doing that as a declaration of good news in the world, that means that we are being engaged in ministry. Ministry is less of a specific action and more of a lens by which we see ourselves moving through the world. Now, gratefully, a couple of weeks ago, we had some members in our community of faith share about how they are actively living out a life of ministry. Some of them talked about having formal positions with a church or with a parachurch organization, but others also shared about how they minister by serving on the board of nonprofits or by building relationships with children and families through Little League, or by choosing to see their actions as something just much more than random acts of kindness, by choosing to see their actions instead as building blocks for the kingdom of God, by choosing to see themselves as active participants in making it on earth as it is in heaven. And there is perhaps no better example of how to wear this lens of ministry than in the story of Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua, they were not ministers. They were not religious officials. They were not preachers or teachers or scholars. Shifra and Pua, they were women which back in that day meant that they were really of no consequence whatsoever. And one of the first things that Bible scholars note about Shifra and Pua is that they have names for themselves recorded in scripture at all because most women go throughout our scriptures and really go throughout every single ancient document as a nameless entity. And so the fact that Shifra and Pua are named is a sign for us all of these years later that what Shifra and Pua did was of such great importance that they had to be remembered by name even though they were women. In fact, what Shifra and Pua did was of such great importance that the scripture says that it was actually God who established their name amongst the people. So, why don't we turn to our scripture? Shifra and Pua come at the time at the start of the story of Exodus, well before Moses gets there, but we'll get there in just a minute. Exodus 1, verses 8 through 21. It says, Then the new king, also known as Pharaoh, the new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, the king said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. 
or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them in the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Because remember, girls, eh, not so important. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before we can even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. What that means is when it says that he gave them families of their own is that he established them as prominent names in a household. So some scholars in, it, in the ancient Jewish tradition, it was believed that Shifra and Pua, those are more like nicknames, and that really it was Moses' mother and Moses' sister who were Shifra and Pua. That is how the Jewish story goes. So our story from scripture today, it comes after Joseph had died. That's the Joseph who had the multicolored coat, who was left to die by his brothers before then he was abducted by human traffickers and taken to Egypt, where through this series of incredible events, he eventually became one of Pharaoh's most trusted government officials. And so during this time of great famine, when Joseph was alive, Many Israelites came to Egypt to escape starvation, to get food from Joseph because word had gotten out that Joseph was a Hebrew. And then because Pharaoh was favorable to Joseph, who was a Hebrew, many of his Hebrew friends and family members stayed and multiplied and made Egypt their home. But when we read our scripture for today, this time of Joseph is now the good old days. Is way back there in the good times that we remember. And the newest Pharaoh was paranoid. And he was afraid of the Jews living alongside the Egyptians because he was certain that these immigrants would turn on them and take their good living away from the Egyptians. So scripture says that Pharaoh did all that he could do to oppress them and to make, in one translation, it says he did everything he could do to make the lives of the Hebrew people bitter. And then it turned out that the more that he tried to make their lives bitter, the more the Hebrew people thrived. And so, perplexed, Pharaoh summoned these Hebrew midwives and gave them careful instructions. He says, kill all the baby boys. And in the Jewish tradition, they go on to say that 
Pharaoh even gave him instructions on how to know if it was a boy even before the child was all the way out of the womb. And I always thought, and I'm not alone in this, fortunately, that this is a really strange ask. Are you with me on this? That the Pharaoh, as an Egyptian, is asking the Hebrew women to kill Hebrew infants to benefit his own fear or, at best, to quell his nation's paranoia. That doesn't make any sense. If we ever need an illustration of arrogance or narcissism, because you know we don't have enough of that in today, anyways, uh, but if we ever need an illustration, we can turn here, because this is a pretty darn good one. And scholars point out that this whole segment makes a lot more sense if we read into it the prejudices against women that Pharaoh is operating off of, prejudices that the scripture itself is highlighting here as unacceptable, even for that time. So Pharaoh says, just kill the boys, because the girls are worthless to him anyway. Pharaoh tells these women midwives to kill their children because in his mind, Women have no ability to think for themselves or do something other than what they are told. Already, Pharaoh has been oppressing and degrading the Hebrew people, treating them as less than human by pressing them into slavery and forced labor because he viewed them as less than fully human, addressing them as animals, assuming that these midwives will have no human emotion, when they have that request to kill those babies, that they will have no human emotion to drive them to do anything other than what he commands them to do, treating the women almost as though they are like docile pets rather than as people. Which, when we see see what's happening there and we read into it what the scripture in the Hebrew is emphasizing to us, the absurdity of his behavior toward these women. That makes Shipra and Pua's answer to him so much more clever and so much more brilliant. Because of course, my friends, if you had any question as to whether or not Shipra and Pua were worried about whether or not they should kill the babies, no, (laughs) of course they were never gonna kill the babies. This is absurd. Of course they were not going to murder those infants. And so then when Pharaoh comes to them asking them in this true disbelief, why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? They answer by using his own prejudices against him. Why? Well, the Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. You know what the Hebrews are like, like animals. They just birth their children on their own without any help. Their response is genius, however we read it. But particularly, it's fascinating when we understand it through the subtext of what the Hebrew in the language is trying to lay out for us. That it is Pharaoh's own prejudices against the women, his underestimation of what they are capable of. It is his own prejudices against the Hebrews as a people that blinds him to the truth of what is happening right in front of his nose. 
It's his foolishness and the cleverness of the women that right in this moment is propelling God's salvation for the human, the Hebrew people forward. You know what's even funnier about this whole story is, is that following our passage for today, following this section that we just read, the story of how the Hebrew people are delivered, it continues on through the hands of women. Shifra and Pua, they ensure the birth of healthy Hebrew boys and girls. So Pharaoh is baffled, and then when he realizes that their children are not going to be killed as they're exiting the womb, he instructs all of the Egyptians, anyone who witnesses an infant Hebrew boy, to take the child and throw the baby into the river, up to the age of two. And so Yachbed, who is Moses' mother, she takes baby Moses and puts baby Moses into a little basket and it, in the Nile. And you know what's interesting? The word that's used there for Moses' basket that's carrying down the Nile is the same word that's used for Noah's ark. So she takes little baby Moses in his little tiny ark and sends him down the way of the Nile. Miriam, it says, is watching, watching over it from a distance as it floats. Miriam, Moses' sister, ensuring that it's going to get somewhere safe, not get stuck in the reeds. And it watches it float right into the palace where Pharaoh's own daughter takes compassion on that infant Moses and ensures that he will grow up to be healthy and strong and wise enough to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt forever. So it turns out that these useless women, including women in Pharaoh's own household, are the ones who directed not only Pharaoh's eventual downfall, but also are the ones who positioned the whole nation of God's people into saving intervention. These women who never set out to do ministry, who were just doing what they were asked to do every single day, but who were doing it through the lens of God's vision for the world. And my friends, that is the point for us today. That is where this story of Shifra and Pua connects into what we are talking about when we talk about every member in ministry. Shifra and Pua weren't set out to do any ministry. They didn't have any tracks. They weren't knocking on doors. They weren't ex- making their prayers perfect. They weren't writing sermons. They weren't going off and visiting the sick in the name of God. They were women who were on the lowest rung of social value because they were women, because they were Hebrews, because they were midwives. That's three rungs down. They had no institutional influence or authority at all, and they didn't set out to do anything other than what they had always done. But the difference was, for this moment, the difference was that they set out doing this job that was in front of them while wearing that lens of God's will, of God's work, and of God's kingdom. They didn't just do as they were told, my friends. They weren't just human machines who were ticking through all of the things that they had to do in their lives, unthinking. Rather, they chose to see what they were doing through the eyes of God's intent for God's people and for creation, and then they responded accordingly. And as a result, they were engaged in God's ministry. Do any of us doubt it? Do we? 
We're a little sleepy today. That's okay. There is no doubt at all that they were engaged in God's ministry because these midwives delivered the nation of Israel, literally delivered the nation of Israel, before Moses was even steady on his feet as a toddler. My friends, being engaged in ministry, it doesn't first start with an action, although an action is a really close second. Being engaged in ministry starts with our perception and our attention to God's ongoing work in the world. Being engaged in ministry starts with our decision to act in priority with God's values rather than the values of our workplace or the values of our friend group or the values of our national mantras or the values of our social clubs. Just as Shifra and Pua did when they looked at Pharaoh, at what he was asking, just as Shifra and Pua looked at the status quo that Pharaoh was attempting to preserve and they said no. In order to be engaged in ministry, by doing the work that they had always done, all they had to do was evaluate what they were seeing by the lens of God and then resisting the way that it has always been done to instead do it God's way. Friends, we are called to do the same. And you do not have to be someone who has a degree. You do not have to be someone who's eloquent. You do not have to be someone who has it all together, who has a deep and unwavering faith. You can be someone who doubts. You can be someone who gets confused, who's concerned, but you can still do ministry by seeing the things that we do each and every day, lining them up with what God tells us through Scripture brings life to the full and then choosing to do it God's way instead of the way that it has always been. Please join me as we pray. God, we are grateful for the way that you have used unsuspecting people in the world to bring about your kingdom in our midst. Over and over again, you, through your scriptures, have showed us that there is no one who cannot be used to build that kingdom. Not the unknown women, not the nameless women, not the uneducated ones, not the slaves, not anyone. Not anyone is exempt from being able to do as you call us to do, making it on earth as it is in heaven. God, please inspire us this week to see how we can view our lives through the lens of ministry, of being friends and partners alongside you in bringing fullness of life to those whom we love as well as to those whom nobody loves, of being people who persistently resist the way that we are told it has always been and always must be and instead place our courage and our action behind the way you are calling us to live. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.